Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, Crisis at the Border, Migrants, Motherhood, and Medical Care. Our guest is Denise Labertu. She is a women's rights advocate and professor. She provides policy guidance on the treatment of women and girls around the globe. She has provided guidance on the Violence Against Women Act and the UN Human Rights Council. Let's welcome Professor Denise Labertu. Welcome, Professor Labertu. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Mary Kay. Excited. Now, your work is, uh, you've worked with on issues with regards to migrant women um, coming across the border why don't you fill us in? You've done so much with regards to working with foreign states in India, um, working on Violence Against Women Act. Please fill us in what is currently going on at the border and, and your work. Yeah, great. I'm so, I'm so excited that we get to talk about this. Um, and one of the reasons I'm really excited for us to talk about this is because I think that we've had um, a, a lot of um, focus on the border without a lot of focus on the experiences of women and girls at the border. And so, um, you know, one of the things that is important for us to consider is that uh, at least half um, of those who pass through the uh, U.S.-Mexico border are going to be women and girls. Many of those um, are fleeing uh, violence in their own countries um, also have experienced violence um, along the, you know, the route into the U.S. The migration route um, are experiencing significant economic um, hardships, um, climate change. You know, climate change is a, a, a real uh, push factor in terms of migration, um, and so without an emphasis really on um, you know, women and girls at the border, we're, we're really missing a huge component of um, the human rights abuses that are, that are happening. And so um, the, the work uh, specifically around this issue um, is to really elevate those experiences of migrant women and girls who are in migration detention. You know, the um, Trump administration's um, zero tolerance policy have created a disproportionate number of, of migrants that are in um, U.S. immigration detention and increase those numbers um, of women as well. So, it, so really raising these issues is, is critical. Recently, the Universal Periodic Review took place. It did. Out in Geneva, Switzerland, I believe. And you had submitted right. some, some papers. Right. Tell us about right. what, you, what you said. Right. So um, I was part of a, uh, a grassroots uh, community uh, network um, and submitted a joint uh, stakeholder report uh, with another, um, uh, another group where we emphasized um, the human rights abuses that women and girls were experiencing in immigration detention. And uh, the stakeholder report was submitted in October of 2019. And obviously the Universal Periodic Review had to be uh, postponed due to COVID. It was in, it's supposed to occur in May in Geneva and was postponed until November. 
But the issues that we raised were really critical. And, um, and for us, there were in the, in the joint review, we certainly focused on um, the um, uh, removal of children from the custody of their parents. And, and that has been a very common um, theme uh, of this issue, right? Absolutely. But it's also been a very common theme in the things that outrage us, right? As a society, like we, we really came together over the outrage of these children being removed from their families. But what we also emphasized is that um, the women and girls who are, who uh, were in immigration detention are not just mothers um, whose children have been taken from them, um, but other women um, and, and other menstruating and birthing folks who are still experiencing human rights abuses, including um, a lack of access to reproductive care, right, reproductive health care, um, a, a lack of access to menstrual materials, right, menstrual hygiene materials. Um, they're experiencing sexual violence. So all of these things were issues that we raised in this report to call attention to it for the international community and the Human Rights Council of the United Nations to take a look at um, the, the impacts of all of these things on migrant women in U.S. detention. And these migrant women they're being sexually abused by U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, border people. Who, who's yeah. Abuse? Well, so um, so I'd like to. I think it's good to really share um, some details about all these experiences, right? I, I'm. Um, uh, part of a community of women who really believes that women's experiences should should be elevated. And I'm really glad that you asked that specific question because um, yes, in fact, there is a, one of the um, uh, cases that we raised in our stakeholder report was um, the case of um, uh, Shark, Sharky V E D, right? And E D is of course a, um, a non-descriptive um, uh, a person, right? Because the it's like a Jane Doe moniker that's been given to this um, to this individual. It's a and, pseudonym, correct? And she um, was a Guatemalan immigrant um, who had a three year old uh, son, um, and uh, her one of the people who worked in detention. I, I, I believe that he was a consultant that worked um, for uh, ICE right, for the um, uh, Customs Enforcement, um, sexually abused her. He pled guilty, actually, to institutional abuse. And the United States refused to acknowledge that they had any obligation to keep her safe um, because she was, in their view, wasn't considered to be a prisoner um, because she was an immigrant. And, and we have domestic laws, right? Things like the um, uh, Civil Rights Act for Institutionalized Persons. We have the Prison Rape Elimination Act, um, both of which um, apply a responsibility and obligation on the United States when they detain somebody and immigration advocates agree that, right? Detention is broad, not just prison. Um, that they have an obligation to keep people safe. And there are certainly international mechanisms um, that right, emphasize the importance of keeping uh, women safe from gender-based violence. And so this particular um, um, issue we raised in our stakeholder report. And how is all this viewed by the international community? Well, um, 
So I think that it's important to understand that um, the U.S. Um, has often functioned within the context of human rights um, at, independently, right? So we are not a party to many international treaties. Um, we uh, have made the case um, uh, whenever we are uh, challenged on that, um, that our civil rights laws are far more protective than um, international human rights um, laws. But the international community remains concerned um, that um, these issues continue to occur with very little um, uh, uh, responsibility, very little intervention um, in the US. So for example, um, things like uh, CEDAW, right, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, um, is an international treaty. Um, we have not signed, um, the, uh, signed CEDAW. The international community consistently um, requests and recommends that we do sign on to CEDAW to protect women. Um, but also, there are mechanisms like the United Nations rules for the treatment of women prisoners or what we would typically call the Bangkok rules that set um, standards for the protection of women in detention. First of all, they emphasize, right, that um, detention should be used as a last resort, um, but also that when you do detain women in particular, um, you have to ensure that they're free from sexual abuse. And so the international community is actually um, uh, really uh, emphasizing the importance of these protections, while the U.S. in particular in the la over the last four years has um, sort of, um, you know, decried their uh, lack of obligation or responsibility in these situations. Okay. Now, the other issue that's in the forefront here is mm -hmm. the medical care of these right. women and girls. Can right. you talk about that particular issue? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're referencing some of the um, uh, issues that I address, which is a lack of access to reproductive care. But also, you know, we've heard a lot um, in the media recently about the forced sterilization um, yes. of women in particular in um, detention centers. So a, a recent case, right, is the case in Georgia um, where uh, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center actually just helped many of the women um, in that detention center um, file medical complaints uh, with the medical board in the state of Georgia um, against the doctor that performed a variety of um, uh, non-consensual sterilization techniques. So, you know, hysterectomies when estrogen patches would have been sufficient, um, invasive, sur invasive surgeries and examinations when they were unnecessary. Um, and so- this, this is reminiscent of, of forced sterilization in the Nazi yeah. regime. It is. And eugenics. And Yes, exactly. And I think that this is really critical to understand. Um, while certainly right now, um, uh, and, and because of my focus on migrant women, right, and certainly right now, this is something that we're hearing about. This is not new. Reproductive justice advocates have been talking about these issues for 
for decades. Um, you know, in, in California, I'm, I'm in California. In California, we had a eugenics movement, right? Um, and that eugenics movement was essentially saying that people who are poor or disabled women, right, who are poor or disabled shouldn't be able to be allowed to have children. We have a, a case, um, you know, that was recently called to attention um, in the state of California in the women's prison where women were having these same experiences, right? And, and this is not unusual. Um, but what is really critical to understand is that it impacts the human rights, right, of women. The international human rights mechanisms say that um, women should be allowed to determine the size of their family when they have it, right? Which certainly means that abortion is a human right but also means that they shouldn't be forced, right, simply because they are detained or incarcerated um, to not have children, right, in the future. And so these are um, things that are coming to light uh, right now and certainly not new, but, um, but are definitely coming to, to light currently. Do you know if some of these women that have undergone some of these non-consensual invasive procedures actually end up staying here or do, are they sent back that way? Do you know what actually yeah. happens to them? Yeah. Well, um, it, it's difficult to really determine what happens, um, but there has been, and, and I don't have um, any direct, um, I haven't had any direct communication with um, many of these women, with some of these women, but um, there has been some reporting that um, they have been threatened with deportation um, if they came forward and disclosed these. And in some of these complaints um, that are being looked at right now and scrutinized, we're seeing that there have been uh, threats. Now, the, um, the federal government has sort of stepped back and said, no, no, we're not going to deport any of these women if they come forward to report their experience. Um, but many of them felt that this was a, a very real threat. So some of them certainly um, will end up being um, sent back to their home countries. Um, others may end up here, you know, may end up here um, depending on their situations. Um, but there have been uh, real threats of deportation if they came forward. I think, you know, I, I really like to emphasize um, something important when we talk about, in particular, migration detention, um, and especially the border between the United States and Mexico. Because while oftentimes we talk about it as an immigration issue, um, we forget that in fact, or maybe we don't want to talk about it, right? That in fact, it's a racial issue. Um, so I'm the daughter of an immigrant. My mom was uh, uh, an immigrant. Her mom was uh, an English woman who fell in love with an American soldier, right? And so my mom um, was not born here in the United States, but she didn't have this same experience, right? Because she is a, a white woman who was an acceptable um, migrant. And so I do think that you're, you're right when we think about this as a migration story, right? That we have a banner that we place over the migration story that says, you know, give us your tired and your weary. Um, but 
really, in some ways, um, we should add to that. Give us your tired and weary migrants as long as they fit into this particular category or that particular category. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that you bring up a really important point um, that while it is counter um, to much of what we like to talk about as the American migration story um, or as the American dream, um, that there is this deeply embedded racism. I mean, I mean, the first, the very first laws that prevented immigrants from having any status was the, the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. It was specifically designed right, to prevent right. Chinese people from being able to enjoy the benefits of this country. Right. There was, there was different exclusions too. And, and even Irish Americans weren't welcomed very well to the United mm-hmm. States. They were mm-hmm. frowned upon at one point in time. But I see that there is right now with especially with the Trump administration, there is this tendency to frown upon uh, immigrants of color. Mm-hmm. Um, he even pretty much said it when he says, where's, where's everybody from Norway? Why aren't they coming here? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, we know the answer to that. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> they get better health care. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think that we laugh about it, right? But, um, but, you know, fundamentally, these are the things that we're talking about. You know, when, when the U.S., takes responsibility for detaining someone, right? So they, uh, these zero tolerance policies have increased the population of detained immigrants. So instead of what, you know, what this administration is often called catch and release, which essentially means, uh, by the way, is problematic because it equates, right, human beings with non-human beings, right, with fish and animals. Right. But, um, but this po- the previous policy of what the Trump administration likes to call catch and release essentially created an opportunity for people to not be detained, right? To not fill detention centers. But when we detain somebody, when we prevent somebody from being, being able to access things like healthcare themselves, um, access uh, menstrual materials themselves, when we prevent them from being able to go to a clinic because they're not free to move around, then we as a country take, re- take on responsibility for access to their healthcare obligations. And when we don't participate in that, then it becomes a human rights issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we basically have said, you're not going to be able to do this on your own, but we're not going to do it either. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, why don't they just come here legally? You know, if they Mm -hmm. came here legally, this wouldn't be an issue. Mm -hmm. But I think what they're missing is that they're fleeing. You know, Mm -hmm. this is not something, you know, you plan out, you know, you're fleeing Mm -hmm. for your life. Mm -hmm. You don't have time to get papers Mm -hmm. in order. And they're Mm -hmm. coming to the border and saying, here I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, I need asylum. Mm -hmm. I've gone Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. this horrendous um, event coming forward and you know that should be right. recognized by the u.s government government right. is asylum seekers they're trying to come the right, right. way but right. a lot of people don't see that can you right. explain well um so i i do want to say something i think is really important and you raised this issue just now and that is that it is not illegal to be 
a refugee, it is not illegal um, to be a migrant. As a matter of fact, um, international human rights mechanisms develop specifically the right to be a migrant. You're not a legal, you're not an illegal person um, simply because you are moving, right? Um, and so I do think that that's um, a, an important issue to raise. Um, what happens though is that because states, meaning countries, right? Um, because states have sovereignty, they can make their own decisions about who they let in and who they don't. Um, this becomes sort of the barrier that uh, allows us to use language of illegality because it's not illegal actually to cross borders, to travel right um, around the world um, as a migrant. What, what happens is states, meaning governments put in place certain rules that say you have to do it this way or that way. Um, and so I, th I think that it's incredibly important to acknowledge this language of legality or illegality because the language of illegality, and I, I wanna um, uh, be clear that a person, a human being is not illegal right? A human being, a person is not illegal. Human beings are human beings. Um, and so when we use these uh, barriers to prevent people, for example, as you pointed out, from seeking safety, um, you know, one of the push factors for most migrants um, is uh, economic problems, right? Um, economic, um, uh, they're oftentimes uh, in societies or in countries where they have limited access to uh, the ability to sustain their living in a basic way, housing, right, healthcare, uh, have a job. And those, the reason there's this economic push factor is because of U.S. economic development policies. And so when U.S. Companies, for example, move into countries um, to have less, uh, to have to pay, you know, uh, their employees less, then it creates this sort of push out of people who need to find a better economic opportunity. Climate change, right? Climate change is a driving factor in migration, um, especially for women and girls. So these are, the, so the U.S. really has to acknowledge its responsibility in pushing some of these um, folks into migration. And so, so, you know, identifying somebody as being an illegal person, um, it creates all kinds of problems um, just in terms of uh, humanity, right? It's and a derogatory empathy. label. Absolutely. And, and the legality changes, right? The legal structures at the border change depending on who's in an administration. So, you know, the Trump administration had different legal requirements um, for migrants than the Obama administration did. That's not the fault of the people who are migrating. Right. Now let's talk about some of those differences between the Obama administration and their policies and the Trump administration and the so-called kids in cages. Mm -hmm. uh, can you elaborate on that particular topic? Yeah. Um, so it's challenging, right? We have, a, as a country, we have a challenging history with immigration. Um, as I mentioned, the very first time that we legally created a structure to keep 
people out, um, it was the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So it was intentionally designed legally um, to prevent certain people from having any kind of legal status. Um, the Obama administration, um, there, there, were, uh, there were often references in the immigration advocacy community to Obama being the deporter in chief, right? Um, meaning that he had uh, a, a large number, perhaps the largest number of deportations, right, of uh, past presidents. You know, sometimes that's based on um, uh, and uh, the way that um, the immigration patterns occur. So if there's a large number of people that are immigrating, right, then deportations are obviously going to increase. But I do think that even though the Obama administration um, had, what, there were a lot of flaws in their immigration policy, um, there was, um, it, there were in some ways um, a, a humanness around that, right? That, versus the zero tolerance policies that look at every migrant entering the country as being out to do harm to someone. Um, and so then you uh, detain them, um, put them in um, a detention center, including children, um, women, girls, right? Um, and then uh, separating them from their parents and causing more trauma to people mm -hmm. that have already mm -hmm. had trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah, certainly there are, def there are definitely stark differences between the treatment um, of people in detention, but we don't want to um, sugarcoat um, our country's, you know, um, policies around immigration. And it's particularly um, interesting considering that, um, you know, and indigenous people are really talking about this and reminding us of this all the time that um, we, unless you are a Native American in this country, you are an immigrant um, exactly. or you come from an, or a family of immigration. So, um, you know, I think that those are really important thing, points to highlight. Mm -hmm. So everybody's sort of got squatters' rights after <laughs> they came. But again, right, we go back to this idea of, um, of how race plays into it, right? Because we're not having conversations. I mean, I know this is sort of a, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why this isn't true, but we're not having conversations about the treatment of people at the Canadian US border, right? We're not having those conversations and the treatment of people at the Canadian US border is very different than the treatment of people at the Mexico US border. And so I think that we have to be really clear that not only are we talking about migration, not only are we talking um, about women, but we're also talking about the intersectional experiences of gender, immigration and race. Yes, I, we never hear these things at the Canadian border. Canadian mm -hmm. border is um, it's not even a topic of discussion. Right, right. So I, I guess, where do we go from here? Um, we we right. see that these women and girls have not only fled abuse or um, famine or whatever it is, right. they're being abused at the border. Um, they're being sterilized against their will. The right. children have been separated for them and even go into foster care. Right. I mean, right. for profit foster care. Yes. Yeah. And 
the for-profit detention. Right. Right. You know, where is all this going? What do you right. see? Um, do right. you think the next administration will reverse some of these policies? What, yeah. what do you think will happen? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important question. And so when when I think about um, when I think about where we go from here, the first thing that I always think about is recognition um, for so many people. Um, over the last four years, the topic of immigration has become something important enough for them to care about, but so infrequently do they notice um, the experiences of women and girls and, you know, trans women, right, trans folks, gender non-binary folks in detention. And so I think recognition has to be key um, in this, like to really raise these issues and pay attention to them, to ask yourself what is really happening. Um, and, and also I think if, because one of the things that you asked is what does this new administration do? I think that they're, that they also have to be willing to recognize the real issues that are happening, right? To be able to recognize that, uh, women, girls, trans folks, children, right, um, are all being impacted uh, disproportionately by these negative, uh, these problematic policies in, in detention. So I think recognition is really key to raise these issues. I think accountability is critical. Um, you know, one of the, in the, the case that um, I raised, that I was talking about earlier, the Sharkey case, um, the U.S. essentially said, we don't have to take responsibility for her protection because she's not a prisoner, right? So we create, we write laws that um, are intended to protect people, and then there's no accountability. And uh, the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, when she uh, came here in 2011, I believe, noted um, the, uh, the problem of uh, sexual abuse of women prisoners, not specifically in detention, but the sexual abuse of women prisoners by their detainers, right? So, so she was aware um, that this was an issue. So we need to be, we need to have accountability. We need to, you know, to say, look, as a country, we've, we've done things wrong um, and we need to account for that. Do you, Go ahead. do you think the United States is really saying that Civil rights, do, civil rights do not apply to these immigrants and those detained. Do you really think that is the real issue here? Well, um, I can't imagine the U.S. would formally ever say <laughs> that civil rights don't apply. Um, but I think that we can draw that conclusion. We can, right? We can draw that conclusion from their actions and. You know, they in in uh, their country report. Um, so so during the UPR process, the Universal Periodic Review process, um, the country under review uh, writes a report about their own human rights record. So you can imagine what that looks like for every country, not just the U.S. Right. The country always says that they're doing a great job. Um, but they specifically cited the civil rights protections that institutionalized persons have access to. There's an act specifically that protects them. 
at the same time, so they cited this as a reason um, that we are a human rights beacon um, in the world. Um, and yet, uh, we know that these are documented experiences that uh, women in detention are having. So we can say it, um, but the actions, right, um, are really what's the most important thing to look at. Yeah, the actions speak louder than words. Correct. Right. So yeah. um, in conclusion, looking at mm -hmm. the bigger picture here, um, we mm -hmm. have, you know, corporations in the United States that are making money in other countries mm -hmm. that, you know, have employed some of these people over the past who have avoided mm -hmm. taxes in the United States. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, you know, maybe those jobs have not, you know, uh, worked out, maybe there's been factory closings or whatever. And of course, if they were in the agricultural industries, those folks would have, you know, because of climate change, they would migrate right. north. So right. I think there's this um, idea in this country that these people are all coming to be freeloaders to mm -hmm. take from the system. Um, right. And I, I don't believe that is the whole truth here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What have you right. seen? Have you seen right. any statistics on any of those particular issues? Well, um, I think that what you're making is a really important point. And it goes back maybe to my point of accountability, right? We have to be accountable, not only for our domestic practices, but also for our international practices. Um, and, you know, the idea of um, a, a freeloading system um, and accountability, uh, that we all benefit from, quite frankly, right? I, uh, you know, like like we talked about earlier, I, li I live in Southern California and um, I have lots of great fruit um, that I can access that's imported, right? Because of uh, policy, because of US economic policies. So I think that we have to acknowledge our own accountability in this international environment um, in terms of not just the pushing, right? So the global destruction of, as you pointed out earlier, uh, crops um, in other parts of uh, the world that push people. But we tout an American dream, right? We say, come here, we're the, be we're the best place for you to be. Um, and so both of those things together um, can create, and, and quite frankly, even when you know, we come um, and are, when, when migrants come, when we as uh, people, as uh, people who live in the United States, try to access things that we're told are great benefits, like healthcare, a job, right? <laughs> Freedom from a virus. Um, we can't access it either. So we have, you know, sort of these both, these, these factors that are working together, right? This destruction of um, systems, uh, people's lives in other parts of the world, and this promotion of this is the place that you come, but once you get here, right, it doesn't feel like you're being taken care of. And so we have to address both of these things at the same time. Yeah. Great marketing. I'm not so sure about the follow through. <laughs> right. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? No, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because I think that so often when we think about women's rights, for example, we don't think about um, uh, migrant women, we don't think about women in detention. Uh, when we think about migrants' rights or people in detention, we don't think about women. 
Um, and so I think that this was a really important opportunity to highlight um, the, the intersectional real lived experiences um, of women and girls expansively, meaning women and girls who identify as women and girls, right? Um, regardless of, you know, your, your birth gender. So, um, so I really appreciate the, the conversation. I think it's been important to have. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been enlightening. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I want to thank our guest, Denise Labatou, for sharing her research and information on the treatment of migrant women and girls at the U.S. southern border. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And now you can download our podcasts and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.